Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking to Shanti Chu about working both inside and outside academia on issues of food and animal rights, some of the identity issues and stereotypes wrapped up in what we eat, and how to find a good vegan restaurant in Chicago. So let me start by reading Shanti's biography. Shanti Chu is an award-winning published philosopher writing and teaching in the Chicago area whose philosophical interests relate to feminist, postcolonial, and critical race philosophy along with food ethics. Outside of the classroom, she's directed a service learning program, directed an LGBTQ plus resource center, and currently runs an ethical vegetarian food blog, Chai Veg, which features her homemade vegetarian and vegan recipes, along with restaurant reviews from a plant-based perspective. She also has a YouTube channel where she posts teaching videos for her students and applied philosophy videos for the general public. You can probably guess we'll be talking about these outreach activities quite a bit today. When not teaching or blogging, she enjoys vegetarian cooking, traveling the world, photographing graffiti, and mixing house and techno as a DJ. So now, here's my conversation with Shanti Chu. One thing that I kind of want to take as like a, maybe an, an umbrella kind of question is thinking about why people eat some food and why people don't eat other kinds of food. Um, so maybe one way to get into that question is to just sort of ask you in general, what are the things... Uh, that you think motivate people to not eat food that would be technically edible, like from a nutritional standpoint? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think perhaps like the most common one that doesn't really require reflection about what we eat is just like what we're exposed to, um, what we're used to eating, what we're fed like when we're younger, um, growing up in our families. And so I think that definitely shapes like what we eat, whether it's edible or not. Um, in, in terms of like, oh, this is, I'm grossed out with this or, um, oh, this is delicious or this is comforting for me. Um, so I think like our early experiences with food as children growing up um, definitely impacts that. And then I think once we get older and we have the ability to at least reflect more than we were able to as children or um, in the habit of doing as children, then we start to maybe think about the ethics of what we eat and, um, oh, you know, I read that it's not, you know, the, the factory farming industry is like completely oppressive. So I don't really want to eat animals as, as an example of that. Or um, I read that, you know, the ecological footprint of eating beef is horrendous in an era of climate change. So I don't want to eat that anymore. So I think um, it's, you know, kind of a combination of what we're used to eating. And then as we get older, kind of the ethics of it, and also just what's available, what we can afford, um, those things that, you know, we can't necessarily control all the time. Um, so it's kind of just like this, this combination of like material conditions and, and thought and, and ethics. Yeah, I think that's all true. And then also there's a strong cultural component, right? So there's mm -hmm. a, a sort of an idea of people like us do this and people like us don't do that as a way to kind of signal who you are, mm -hmm. uh, that I think has a strong kind of influence. And that actually interacts with ethics in an interesting way. So you know, in the U.S., I think there's a sort of assumption or a stereotype that if you think seriously about ethics uh, for the food that you're eating, and seriously just meaning, you know, putting a lot of thought into it and having it affect the outcome of what you end up eating, um, that that is a sign of uh, 
privilege or class, right? In the sense mm-hmm. that you can afford to make choices. I mean, that part to that level, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense, right? It's at least we're thinking about, yeah. you know, if you, if you say I only eat organic food, well, that is saying that I spend more money on food than I would have to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a class signal. And then also it gets coded, I think, racially as sort of a white thing to do in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, maybe as a certain level of education, too, right? Mm-hmm. That it's a college-educated white middle class or up kind of thing to do. It's mm-hmm. also very gendered. Uh, so it's, so we keep adding, mm-hmm. you know, these circles, right? So it's a, it's a feminine, white, middle class, educated thing to do to think carefully about um, ethical implications for where the food that you're eating comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, do you, do you think that I'm even uh, right that that's a stereotype? And then why do you think that stereotype comes about? And, uh, you know, what, what can we do to change it? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that that's a stereotype. And it's a really, um, it's like, it's such a frustrating stereotype, I think, uh, because it can alienate people who don't fit into those categories who are like vegetarian or plant-based for ethical reasons. And so I think sometimes, I mean, that's one of the, you know, negative impacts of stereotypes that it's alienating. But I mean, it's a stereotype for a reason. And I think one of those reasons is that, yeah, you know, in American culture, um, eating meat is viewed as cheaper. And in some cases it is right. And it's a lot more accessible. You can go to a fast food, you know, chain and like order a burger and, you know, you're full from that. Whereas if you're a vegetarian, you can't really do that. I mean, things are definitely changing now, but just like in, for in the mainstream kind of cases, um, you're going to have to kind of figure out like, Oh, well, I can't just, quickly eat this burger here for like, I don't know, five, $6. Now I have to figure out how I can go make my own salad. And now I go to a grocery store. Um, and I think the issue with food deserts is definitely one of the reasons why it's harder to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables um, because of the way like certain um, neighborhoods are set up in cities where you know you're in a wealthier area when there's a Whole Foods, right? You know you're in a wealthier area when there's like a farmer's market. Um, and so it's like the way it's set up economically in this society, I think is part of the reason why that stereotype exists, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. It's just like the intense lobbying powers of the meat and dairy industry that's led it to be so cheap and just kind of the history of the factory farming industry. Um, and then I think with gender, um, yeah, meat has traditionally been tied with masculinity and muscles and just this idea that if you don't eat meat, you're not going to have protein. So you're not going to be tall or you're not going to be muscular and being tall and muscular are kind of associated with being masculine. Um, whereas being thin or skinny or, you know, waif-like and stereotypically is viewed as being feminine. And so there's that, I think it's kind of circular where it's like, Oh, if you're vegetarian, that means you're like the stereotype. It's not the reality at all, but Oh, if you're vegetarian, you're going to be, you know, skinny. And so that's kind of uh, an expectation that that's placed upon women, um, whereas being muscular and bigger is placed upon men. So the idea of like the, the role of the body is viewed as being impacted by what we eat. Um, and then I think culturally in the US, you know, there, that's kind of, that, I think that's been the hardest issue um, because yeah, there are so many cultures that have meat as just like a regular staple in their diet. And so it's, it's like, you don't want to seem dismissive about that. Cause it's like, okay, it's one's culture, but at the same time, there are also 
um, many cultures, non-European cultures that have been more plant-based, um, you know, like just thinking about South Asian cultures and also um, some Western, Eastern African cultures prior to colonization um, were more plant-based. And you just don't hear about that. You just think like, oh, it's like you'd hear about diets after colonization as being like, oh, well, that's their culture. That's their diet instead of in quotes, um, instead of thinking about, well, what did they eat like before colonization? Um, and with colonization, it's like there's that imposition of one's own of, of European culture, which has traditionally associated eating meat with being healthy, with protein, with not being a, a religious heretic, right? So it's like if you want to be more Western and white, then you need to eat meat um, when you think about it outside of the context of the U.S. So it's kind of just interesting how in the U.S. it's like viewed as this way when you think about it globally. And it's like, well, actually, it's viewed as being more Western and European to eat meat. It's viewed as a privilege to eat meat. So that that foil is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's true. Um so in your own sort of experience, uh, you come from several different backgrounds and you are vegetarian, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Have you found that navigation uh, difficult? Like, did it feel like you were abandoning some of the food that you grew up eating uh, or was it more just an open exploration? Like, what was your own kind of experience with it? Yeah, it's definitely complicated for me because of my cultural backgrounds. But um, so my mother is from Hungary and um, it's a pretty like meat heavy diet. And then my father is from India, um, which is definitely more veg friendly. Like he, I grew up eating meat. He ate meat, um, but not beef. So like chicken and turkey and things like that. And so um, my parents divorced though. So I grew up with my mom. So I didn't really grow up eating a lot of Indian food, even though like whenever I had to like visit him, um, we would eat Indian food and I absolutely hated it as a child, but it was, I, it was more vegetarian because he became vegetarian later on. Um, but I kind of resented it as a child, <laughs> um, cause I just wanted to fit in and with like the, cause I grew up in like white suburbia. So I wanted to fit in and with my mom, like she made cuisine from all over the world, but she didn't really cook a lot of beef, even though we ate it sometimes, but she, it, she made more like chicken and turkey. And so one of the kind of cultures she would make food from is, you know, was from Hungary, um, being Hungarian. And so, you know, there are certain like classic Hungarian dishes like chicken paprikash or Hungarian guyash, which are like meat, which, you know, have beef or chicken, depending on what dish we're talking about and have sour cream and just things that I don't eat anymore. Um, and so I had wanted to become a vegetarian when I was in high school, when I, when, when I was learning more about the factory farming industry, but I just couldn't because my mom was just really frustrated with it and thought I was just trying to be trendy because I had a friend who was doing it. Um, and then it wasn't until I was in college and I was on my own um, when I could really have the choice of what I ate, right? It wasn't contingent upon like what my mom was cooking for dinner that night. And I did have a harder time for holidays like Thanksgiving, um, where it's like the main feature is the the turkey, like the dead animal. And so um, now I've been doing it for like 13 years and it's not like I don't feel as much of like a pull towards it, um, towards like eating meat as I did before. Um, and with my Indian side, I did feel like it was kind of a way for me to connect with my Indian culture because I was so like disconnected and I hated it for so long because of like internalized racism that happens. And um, 
I started really enjoying Indian food when I was in college. Um, and it's just so much easier to like eat vegetarian when you're eating Indian food. Cause there's just way more options, um, with, you know, protein, like beans and lentils and things like that. So I felt like it was a way for me to reconnect it, even though I felt like I was walking away a little bit more from my Hungarian side. But when I cook now, cause I love cooking, um, you know, I definitely cook both. Like I cook Indian, I cook vegetarian, or I cook, um, Hungarian vegetarian food as well. And it's exciting to try to make some of my favorite Hungarian dishes, but veganized. So yeah, it's definitely a, a complex situation, but it's, it's impacted how I feel about food and both, you know, both Hungarian cooking and Indian cooking, which is like really vast, obviously, because India is huge, but both of them are, they use a lot of spices and a lot of flavor. And so that's, really impacted my cooking. Like I, I always use paprika and, and cumin and masala. Like those are just like my, my basic spices. And so I think that's impacted like how I flavor things and what I like to eat as someone who cooks at home. Yeah. I think that versions of that story would resonate with a lot of people that, uh, you know, at first it seems like you're moving away from things, but then making any kind of strong dietary shift, uh, you know, veganism in my case, but even somebody who tries to become, uh, I don't know, kosher or gluten-free even, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it makes you reconsider all the food around you. And it, at first is a subtraction and then becomes an addition as it sort of forces you <laughs> to think more about food, to learn how to cook other kinds of dishes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, can be sort of this interesting discovery. You know, when I teach my uh, philosophy of food class, I always encourage my students for a few weeks to make, uh, to choose a diet. Uh, and go with it, one that's quite different from what they eat now, just for that sort of uh, chance to step outside of uh, habit and inertia, mm -hmm. like you were talking about at the beginning, and think about, um, you know, think about food with you know, sort of new eyes. Yeah. So is yeah. the reason you're vegetarian now uh, still largely uh, because of factory farming? So meaning that if there were, you know, different animal raising techniques used in the United States that you would uh, be comfortable then eating those animals? Um, I think that was definitely the catalyst for it. Um, but now it's like, even if there were different ways to raise animals for consumption, um, I wouldn't, I still wouldn't eat them. Um, cause I think, you know, sentience is a big thing for me. So, um, even if like, let's say they're quote unquote humanely killed, um, I just don't necessarily feel right about consuming another sentient being that, you know, has this level of consciousness, I can feel pain and pleasure, um, especially when I can get the same nutrients in a more efficient way and in a healthier way too from legume, legumes and, um, you know, plant-based foods basically. So I don't, so even if it, some magical thing were to happen, right, and the factory farming system was abolished, um, I still wouldn't feel right eating other animals. Yeah, I uh, initially vegetarian sort of in the same way that you did and similar pushback from my mom in fact <laughs> uh though i was about 10 years younger it was when i was nine years old that i first oh, wow. uh, you know went uh made that decision uh, which you can imagine you have even less power to control <laughs> what you eat when you're nine than when you're a teenager yeah. um yeah and in fact she was concerned about protein and uh, you know as you were saying it becomes coded as masculine and just you know the sense of getting taller getting muscle i think that the uh i think that it's somebody should, I mean, maybe somebody's already written a paper about this that I just missed, but somebody should look into this because uh, it's interesting that sort of semi-scientific concepts like protein uh, then gets kind of latched onto for, you know, cultural beliefs or even just like old beliefs. Like I mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, our thought about the elan vital, the, the life force, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned that that's not a thing. Uh, okay, fine. It, but everyone knows that it is a thing. So it must just be this thing protein that we've talked about instead. You know, I have some friends in Germany uh, who are vegan and they say that no one ever asks them, where do you get your protein? That's not a wow. question they've ever been asked. But what they get asked all the time is where do you get your iron? Huh. So, the th- so the thing that they latched on in Germany that must be what is magic about eating animals <laughs> is yeah. iron instead of protein. So it's, you know, it's the same idea. You just have something kind of standing in for it. I think it also has a lot to do with why, um, you know, news stories about uh, how estrogen-like compounds are in mm-hmm. tofu or whatever, you know, those kinds of conversations get repeated so much because it's less a scientific question. I mean, you know, I'm not seeing those articles shared by nutritional scientists so much as yeah. by people that feel like it's confirming sort of a, a deep, like, you know, subconscious uh, category that they think is true. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it feels so embedded in our cultural psyche to think that meat is tied to protein and masculinity. And um, it's kind of funny. So my fiance is a vegetarian and he became a vegetarian after we started dating, but he already was on that path. And so everyone thinks that I made him do it. And so people will ask him questions like, oh, like when she, when Shanti isn't around, like, do you eat meat? Like, <laughs> like I, as if it's this act of rebellion against me, his mas- his masculine rebellion. Or if we go out to eat sometimes, like we'll ask for a vegetarian menu um, and they'll double check. They're like, wait, you both are? They, they don't question the fact that I am, but they always double check with him. Um, and it's just kind of funny because it's like very unconscious and it's like a reaction like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I assume you have to think about these kinds of things because you uh, aren't just somebody who you know has made a personal kind of uh, dietary decision based on morals or ethics or whatever you like. Um, and maybe health, maybe environmental stuff as well. But you mm-hmm. actually do a lot of advocacy and outreach about uh, encouraging people to try a more plant-based diet. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit, first of all, about the work that you do? And then uh, I'm interested in hearing about um, some of the challenges or the ways that you approach uh, strategically to do that. Yeah. So I guess I could talk about it in terms of what I've done academically versus uh, outside of academia. Um, and I, I'm not saying there's like a huge divide between the two, but that's just kind of an easy way for me to talk about it. Sure. Um, but so just, you know, in general, I... I do identify with the term foodie, even though it has like a really bad reputation. It's just like these hedonistic consumers of avocado toast taking photos all the time. And um, like when I, when I was in high school, when I was in college, like I love taking photos of my food because I just, I just, I enjoy it. And um, I always felt though that there was this tension between being a foodie and being a vegetarian or being a foodie and being someone who thinks about ethics in class. So the idea of like being a more thoughtful foodie or being an ethical foodie, I think I wanted to bring those together. And I always loved writing about food. I remember, you know, back in grade school, we would have these journal articles or these little journal um, descriptions of our weekend. And I would talk about the food that we ate. And um, so I would start writing about food reviews on Yelp because it was just like a fun outlet for me. And it was also really light compared to like what we do in philosophy sometimes. And then I realized, you know what, I really like to start this blog, like where I focus on the idea of being an ethical foodie. Um, And since I live in Chicago, I wanted it to be more Chicago focused because Chicago, it's, you know, an amazing city. The food is incredible, but it's still like a Midwestern city. And so there can be limitations sometimes with like the whole vegetarian label where, 
you'll go into like, I don't know, the, the West Loop and which is like where some of the, the stereotypically the best food is in the city. And oftentimes they're not vegetarian friendly menus. Maybe they'll have some like fish options, right? But in terms of having actual vegetarian or like vegan options, even it's, it's not necessarily the best. And so I would read these articles from like various food publications, like Eater Chicago or the Chicago Tribune and like read these reviews or these lists. And it always be like, oh, essential places to try. And it's like, oh, this place is known for bone marrow. Oh, this place is known for um, ribs or this place is known for, um, you know, some sort of like special pate, right? And it's like, well, how can we do this in a way that's more plant-based or more vegetarian friendly? And so I created my blog, Chai Veg, and it was right after Trump was elected. And I felt this huge heaviness and I had to do something that helped me personally too, cope to cope with everything, but to feel like I had some sort of efficacy in my life and outside of the classroom as well. Um, and so I wanted to think about the vegetarian food scene in Chicago, but also think about it in terms of dismantling some of the stereotypes about being a vegetarian as this, like such a difficult endeavor, especially the stereotypes about it being more expensive. And it's like, yeah, it can be more expensive if you do like the whole, the whole foods life, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so I kind of, some of my first blog posts were about how I started it as a college student who was very broke. And, you know, obviously there's circumstances that I wasn't experiencing, like college was my main thing. I worked a side, you know, a part-time job, but I have no idea what it would be like if I had kids or, you know, had other people to feed. But at least for me in my process, like in my journey, I wasn't wealthy. I didn't have money to, you know, to start this vegetarian diet. And so that's like, those were some of the first blog posts I wanted to think about with like the dismantling those stereotypes. Um, and then just kind of showing that you can cook tasty vegetarian meals on weeknights when you're busy. Um, it doesn't have to be this whole thing where you have to make your own like Satan or something. Um, and then with the Chicago restaurant reviews, I would uh, view it, I would, I had different like rating systems for like vegetarian, pescatarian and vegan friendliness um, on top of like the taste and the price and everything. Um, and so just to say like, hey, here are these great restaurants that are veg friendly. And I didn't want to just focus solely on vegan or vegetarian restaurants, but I also wanted to do it on restaurants that you might go to with like friends who eat meat. And can you find something that's good? Um, for you as as a plant based eater, so that's that's where that came from. And then I started the Instagram Chai Veg Food for it, not necessarily because I like Instagram, but it was a way for me to try to promote my posts because it's really hard because there's so many food blogs out there and there's a lot of vegetarian food blogs out there. So I started using my Instagram as a way to say like, hey, like this is my blog post on this restaurant, or here's my recipe. And so that definitely kind of um, took it like it went in, into its own kind of space because Instagram, I, there's so many frustrating issues with Instagram, but I feel like I have more power over that than what's seen on the internet with like Google SEO stuff, which I won't talk that much about, but yeah. So the whole chai veg thing was like my desire to apply philosophy to what we eat in a way that was very um, moving for me, but also in a way that I wanted to be very applicable for like the general public and then academically, well, um, let's, let's talk oh, about yeah. that first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, cause I think that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, one thing, uh, that, you know, I can see right away with that, it can be very isolating when you're trying to eat uh, a plant-based diet and you can feel, it can feel impossible. And so being told ways that 
uh, it is possible, uh, particularly when they aren't obvious, can be really uh, helpful. Like when I first moved mm-hmm. uh, to East Lansing, Michigan for my um, graduate program, um, I found a lot of like secret things like this restaurant uh, is it's a chain pizza place. So it's its menu is only the chain pizza things. However, I know that the guy who runs it, his wife is vegan. And so he knows how to make vegan pizza and will make it for you. He has all of the <laughs> stuff, the cheese and the fake meat. You just have to go ask for it, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, spreading that kind of information uh, actually can be quite helpful because it shows people, um, you know, possibilities. But do you think it also has a way to reach out to people that aren't uh, currently sort of like on that path? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's like one of the reasons why I focus on what we eat so much when it comes to like advocacy or outreach, because it's something that many of us do multiple times a day, right? It's it's a way to affect change in a very concrete and yes, it's individual, but at the same time, um, if a bunch of people do the same thing, there's going to be a much larger effect. So I think that's something that I wanted to think about, like how can people not feel, you know, when you hear about all these injustices and you read about it, it's just so overwhelming. And you're thinking like, where do I even start? But then, oh, I also have to pay the bills. I also have my job or, or, you know, oh, I have to take in my family. So how can I actually live through, live by these principles that I really believe in? And so I think with eating, it's a really relatively easy way to do that. Of course, I'm not saying it's like easy all the time, but it's a relatively easy way to to kind of live by our principles given, you know, certain context, of course. Um, and I think that, well, with, with my blog, I do, I don't know. And with the Instagram that I have for the blog, I would say that I did like a, a random survey in my stories on Instagram, just kind of curious with like how people identify, um, in terms of like pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan. And so I would say most of the people who, responded at least, um, were saying that they're just kind of flexible with what they eat. Um, and then the second highest was pescatarian. Um, and I know that's probably just in, you know, reflective of our general population in the U S but, um, I also, you know, I, I think that it's just something like Instagram can be a way for people who aren't necessarily vegetarian to see like, Oh, it's not as hard to be a vegetarian, Um, and just trying to convey like, oh, you can make this on meatless Monday or something, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who are curious about it, but they're scared. And so I think something like, you know, (laughs) at least I'm attempting, uh, with my blog or with my Instagram to show like, Hey, it doesn't have to be as hard. And I think sometimes people are really scared because they're like, oh, well, if I'm vegetarian, like what if I mess up, you know, what if I get drunk at 3am one night and then I eat this burger, then it, then it's ruined. And, and so what I try to convey on both, you know, on, on chai veg in general, is just to say like, Hey, it's not necessarily about being a hundred percent perfect vegan or vegetarian. It's about just, you know, trying to live by the principles that you believe in. And so whether it's just like reducing your meat intake or just doing it on meatless Mondays or whatever, right. It, I think that's kind of the approach I, I try to embody um, with my blog and, and the, the Instagram account to say like, hey, you don't have to be like this perfect angel. Um, you know, it's about like what you're trying to do. And of course, certain situations may come up and prevent you or, you know, something may happen, but that doesn't mean that you're completely thrown off and you can never try to eat plant-based. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, so it's pretty clear that as soon as you start to do this kind of uh, just normal living in the world, let alone trying to tell other people that they ought to try these restaurants, this kind of food, that it has a lot of academic impacts. 
so how does that, how has that informed uh, your academic work and how has your academic work informed uh, these kinds of, I don't want to say real world, but uh, to non-academic uh, outreach efforts? Yeah. So I, I, I think I'll start out with, um, with teaching and then I'll talk about um, my like writing, but um, with teaching, I teach ethics and, you know, we talk about animal ethics and animal rights and the environment. And so I don't necessarily think I would be as excited about teaching those units um, if I wasn't a vegetarian, if I wasn't like personally so concerned about animal rights and animal ethics. So I think in terms of what I choose to teach and my enthusiasm with teaching it, right, my my life dis- my life choices have impacted that. And I also, you know, have my students do like a, it's kind of similar to what you said with your students, but um, it's not specifically about eating, but for like the last couple, last two weeks of the semester, part of their final project is to apply an ethical action or an ethical principle to their daily lives that they have to practice for two weeks. So that's, that way, you know, it's not a super long time, but it's not like super overwhelming and jarring or scary for them if it's just two weeks. And so some students choose to be a vegetarian or a vegan, um, or I'm trying to, or like another student decided to go off caffeine, uh, for two weeks. So it's just, I, I really like that, you know, students can apply what we're talking about and what they're learning to their personal lives. And as you talked about trying to walk away from a habit and trying and seeing like, oh, it's not as scary as I thought, but, as I thought it would be. And like I said, I know two weeks isn't long enough to break a habit, but it's just like a little preview, I guess. Um, so with my teaching and what I teach, it's definitely impacted that being a vegetarian or being concerned about animal rights has impacted that. And then with what I've been writing, um, I think coming from the frustration with the stereotypes in our culture of plant-based eating being like a a white middle-class women, college educated um, kind of space, I wanted to, I, I want to convey that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like that and it doesn't have to be like that. And so I published a chapter on not like the intersections of veganism, nonviolent resistance, anti-racism and, and, and also feminism. But in, you know, I think reading a breeze Harper's work from sister vegan, and she specifically talks about black or African-American feminism and veganism, and just kind of seeing all these various accounts and looking more into it that, you know, various cultures, you know, whether some like East and West African cultures, as I mentioned before, and just all over the world, just seeing that they were more plant-based prior to colonization. It's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be, unfortunately it can be in our, in American society, but it doesn't have to be like veganism doesn't have to be this like imperialist project. And, you know, Harper's work also showed how like veganism can be a means of self-healing for women of color because the meat and dairy industry is wrapped up with imperialism and um, with oppression. And then when you think about like, I'm, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with fast food nation and just like the way the slaughterhouse employees are treated, the fast food workers are, are, are treated. And, um, you know, there's a decent chunk who are undocumented, who are, you know, completely exploited. There's like sexual assault that's rampant. And so it kind of brings together how um, the 
factory farming industry and the fast food and the meat industry, right? They negatively, they not only negatively impact human or non-human animals, but they also negatively impact the workers and then people who are consuming it and, and their health and what they have access to. So it's kind of this chain of oppression. Um, and that's kind of what I focused on in that paper um, through thinking about how one can practice nonviolent resistance in their daily lives and through what we eat can be a concrete way of doing that. Um, and then right now I'm working on a chapter for the public philosophy reader on food and philosophy and specifically on how um, philosophy has kind of handled food and also what public philosophers are doing with respect to food. Um, and so, of course, you know, there's a good chunk of that chapter that talks about animal rights and animal ethics. And so, you know, if I wasn't thinking about that in my personal life, I wouldn't have focused on it in this chapter, but also in terms of how my academic work has impacted my personal life. Um, it's led me, speaking of consistency, it's led me to want to be more consistent. So um, I first, when I decided to stop eating meat, I went completely cold turkey, became a vegan. Um, and then over time, I started just being a vegetarian again, and like would eat cheese. Um, and then after I would, I continued to like, I think around the time I was writing the, the chapter on veganism and nonviolent resistance, um, you know, the dairy industry is just as unethical <laughs> as the meat industry. Um, so that's when I decided like, okay, I'm going to stop cooking with dairy. And really the only thing I would, the dairy thing I would buy was cheese. But, um, you know, I just realized like, I didn't want to support that, like in my cooking, in my home, you know, cause at least in my home, I, I can control what I eat, but I can't really do that all the time outside of my home. Um, and so with eggs too, you know, I strictly, I did some research and I strictly only, only buy free range eggs. Cause I personally don't have a problem with eggs in them in itself, but it's more about the conditions that are experienced to get the eggs. So it's not necessarily like a hundred percent, the most ethical way of existing, but it's kind of the middle, kind of the middle path that I'm, I'm trying to do. So like reading about the factory farming conditions more and doing research for these various um, articles has kind of helped me realize, okay, you know what, like I'm writing about this. So I actually should like do something about it. <laughs> sure. And those are both sort of interesting. Let me talk about research first and then I have some questions about teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so for your research, do you, cause I've, I've gotten different answers, uh, on this question from different people who work in sort of the same areas that you do. And I mean, I, I also publish in those areas and I go back and forth on any given day. So I'm curious what you think. Do you think that the, that doing research, writing academic papers for an, for an academic audience um, of other PhDs, you know, who are thinking carefully about the truth of the matter, hopefully, right? Um, <laughs> do you think that that has an impact, right? Do you consider that as part of your advocacy and outreach and trying to have an ethical impact in the world? Or are you just sort of pointing out something that is true? And, you know, there's a, there's a value in thinking through our commitments and trying to get clear on what we believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be both, right? Just when you're reading these various articles, um, of course, even if you don't necessarily apply it personally, directly apply it to your own life, right? There's a seed that's been planted. And I think for me, you know, reading so many of these articles about um, these academic articles about food and um, animal rights and ethics and all these things, right? That's 
that those have planted so many seeds in me. Um, but at the same time, I think that I also have it in my mind as, you know, oh, well, if someone decides to like use this article or use this book or whatever in their classroom, right, that can be a great way to affect change as well and to have a wider audience. But I do think that, you know, with academic publications, right, it's a smaller audience that's reading it. And so that's one of the reasons why it was important for me to start my blog, because anyone can look at it. Um, and I try to make it approachable. So there's definitely that tension I felt about academic publications, but I think it's intrinsically valuable for people to just like read it and, and think about it and, re and reflect on it, whether or not it will necessarily, you know, lead to some sort of concrete change in their lives. Yeah. I mean, you know, both of us uh, in various ways, I mean, you're on my podcast right now, <laughs> clearly are trying to do other sorts of ways of reaching a wider audience in addition to mm -hmm. academic research. Um, but, and let me ask you about the teaching, because then this becomes sort of an interesting question too, that I've also gotten different answers from different people on. Um, how do you think about your, the relationship between teaching, education, and advocacy? So, you know, on the one, I, I mean, there's various answers, right? Um, you might say that, uh, you know, you want to keep your own personal opinions out of the classroom and you're just teaching ethical frameworks. Some people think this, some people think this, some people think this. On the other hand, if you think it is true that you're that if you think that your ethical framework uh, is better, right, and if you're publishing on it, presumably you think that it is capturing more uh, salient features of the universe, right? That if you think sentience, for example, is something that ought to ethically matter, then maybe you ought to tell students that that is true, that it, that it does ethically matter, even though, you know, of course, you'll point out counter arguments, right? But you won't be mm -hmm. afraid to say that you think that this is right. Um, so I've gotten both, an both answers on that part of the question. And then also, you know, specifically focusing in on, you know, diet. Because on the one hand, you want to be honest maybe about what you're doing, but you don't want to, I don't know. I don't know. I, what, yeah. what do you think about this topic? Yeah, it's a really, it's one I grapple with a lot because I think there's that kind of expectation and maybe it's happening less so now with like the past couple of years we've had, but um, there's that expectation that educators in general should always keep their views and their politics out of the classroom. And so you just need to teach from an 100% objective perspective. But whether or not one is conscious of that, I think that's impossible. Um, so of course, our values are going to be embedded within what we teach. Now, obviously, we can be more reflective about it and try to strive to be more objective. But I think it's important if we like acknowledge how our values and our and our ethical views, right, impact what we teach and how we teach it. And I think with when I when I teach ethics, like I I try to provide, yeah, like different perspectives on the issue of animal rights, but I'm also presenting them with the facts of like this is what happens in the factory farming industry. And it's not it's not an opinion, right? It's like it's a fact. And unfortunately it's like so many things, it's made to be like this political thing about like, well, that's your opinion, but it's like, no, this is an actual fact. Um, and so, and I also just say like, I am a vegetarian for ethical reasons, but I, you know, I, I want to be honest and transparent with them about it. So they know like, yeah, that's probably going to impact like where she's coming from. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I want to be really open with them. And I always encourage them to ask me questions about it, about being a vegetarian you know, because I think a lot of college students have questions like, well, what about protein or what about money or things like that? And so I want to be like a resource for them about it and um, help kind of mitigate <laughs> stereotypes about it as well. Um, so I think it's, it's, 
I think it's inevitably going to come out in some way, but as long as I try to create the environment where students who have multiple ethical views about the the situation feel comfortable sharing and talking about what they want to talk about, I think that's kind of where I'm coming from. It's like I want to create a comfortable environment where multiple views can be shared, but I I still want to say like hey, this is just where I'm coming from, but everyone is still open to 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 share where they're coming from. Yeah, I feel like um, as long as you're like leaving some space open for them to tell you that they think you're wrong or even dumb, I try to make a lot of space for students to feel they can tell me that I'm stupid. Uh, then they're, <laughs> then they're curious. They want to know what you think about stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to establish that rapport with your students where just what, regardless of what you're talking about, where they feel comfortable enough to share their views, even if it disagrees with the view they think you have. Yeah. So I, let me actually ask you another question. Uh, you know, looking at your blog, uh, brought this up to me. What do you think about the term plant-based uh, as opposed to vegetarian or vegan? Because yeah. uh, on the one hand, so I, you know, I've heard lots of different arguments for it in in favor or against. Uh, speaking as somebody who is vegan, if I see that something is plant-based, uh, it's still the case that I need to read what the ingredients list are because it doesn't always mean vegan. So, uh, so what do you think about the use of that term? Uh, cause it's certainly becoming more common. Yeah, I think, yeah, I definitely have mixed feelings about it. So I think in one way, you know, because unfortunately veganism is tied to like whiteness and privilege, um, and femininity in our society, uh, plant-based has been used by specifically various communities of color to kind of reclaim that identity and say like, Hey, you know, we're not necessarily a part of this white veganism in our society, but um, plant-based seems to be more of a flexible term. Uh, And I think that's where maybe some people prefer to use it because it's like, well, I am mainly eating vegetarian or vegan, but at the same time, you know, there's these other things that I'm eating that may not be viewed as 100% vegan. So it seems to be more of a flexible and fluid term for you know, a more vegetable and bean-based diet. But at the same time, I think, you know, it can be more confusing and it can lead to some kind of, I guess, blurry vision about like, well, what does it even mean to be plant-based? Because someone can use, because it is already a flexible term, right? Someone could say plant-based interchangeably with veganism, whereas others might say it as like, well, it's mainly plant-based, but it's not 100% vegan. So I think it's like, it can be a great way to kind of reclaim one's diet, you know, in a, in a society as ours, in a white um, supremacist society as ours. But at the same time, um, it can lead to some kind of confusion and just like practical confusion, like you said, like, oh, I have to like read this label. Whereas if it says vegan, I don't have to, right? Um, I'm curious to see, you know, what term is going to be used like 20 years from now, because of course, it's, it's going to be something that's going to change constantly. But I think that maybe some of that pressure we were talking about that people experience when um, they hear the term vegetarian or vegan, I think plant-based kind of, you know, ameliorates that a little bit because it's like, well, I'm mainly vegetarian, but I don't have to like feel like a failure or something if I eat fish or if I, you know, I don't know, have a chicken sandwich like once every three months or something. But at the same time, it seems a little wishy-washy. Yeah. I mean, giving people a tool to say, I'm trying my best might sounds good. Giving people a tool mm-hmm. to say, you know, um, the tradition, traditional diets from many parts of Africa, uh, traditional diets from many parts of East Asia are plant-based in the sense that they eat far less meat than 
uh, the diet that you eat here in the U.S. That's mm -hmm. useful. That sounds good. Um, mm -hmm. You know, or even being able to say, this is what I eat, but don't ask me a bunch of questions about Peter Singer. Right? <laughs> Maybe it's good <laughs> to have a word to signal something like that. Like, no, I have not thought about it. No, I do not want to have a conversation with you about it. This is just what I eat. That, that might be helpful also. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like those things are all good. My only worry is that when labels are vague in usage, then they can be used by for-profit companies mm -hmm. um, any way they want. So um, organic is very rigidly defined um, in U.S. law, for example, if you're going to say that something mm -hmm. is organic. I mean, people can think that it's not, you know, the standards aren't high enough, but there are very, very clear standards. And it's like literally illegal for you to call your product organic if it doesn't meet those standards. But natural has no legal standard, right? Because people use it lots of different ways, then companies can always call their product natural, you know, yeah. as, oppo as opposed to alien, I guess, uh, <laughs> and or digital or something. And, you know, it's, it's a natural Dorito. It's not a digital Dorito. And so, um, people, can, so people can use that as they want. Um, clean is another one that I think is going to mm. similarly mm. can be used for any purpose. Um, even local uh, is... I think there might be some restrictions to it, but not much. So, you know, my, my concern about vaguely defined terms is only that it may end up getting co-opted by, mm. you know, some kind of company that wants to say they have plant-based chickens, which surely yeah. is true, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think we, just in the past, like three years, we've seen more of these like companies co-opt plant-based and um, try to profit off of like quote unquote clean eating, veganism, right? All of these various labels. Um, and so in one sense, it's like, okay, if I'm just thinking about it from a utilitarian perspective, it's like, well, this is a good thing. Like, you know, more people are seeing these companies are conveying this and it's more accessible to people. Great. But at the same time, it's like anything that gets commodified, it's kind of tricky and um, it feels kind of nauseating. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, in any social movement, there's a tension between getting mainstream acceptance, which means something is much more available mm -hmm. and wanting it to have a radical critique built into it. Yeah. And when it gets mainstream acceptance, the radical critique that's kind of part of it gets sanded off, right? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I do in my class is I ask them to bring some food uh, from their own lives to kind of talk about something that is meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And I found it's a great activity, by the way, I would strongly suggest yeah. for, for any of your own classes, because yeah. um, it's a way for students to open up about themselves and learn about themselves and each other. Um, and it's a thing that people think they can talk about. And also, you know, as we were saying earlier, sharing food together builds community. It makes people feel like they're in a group together, that they're sharing mm -hmm. food. Um, since we moved online in the last year, I haven't been able to have students literally share food with each other. So instead, I had them make um, little videos presenting uh, a dish, which actually, huh. I don't know that that worked kind of better. Um, <laughs> if, if I move back in person, I'm going to still make them make those videos, but then they can also bring the food for people to share because mm -hmm. uh, all my students are very good at producing uh, cooking show videos, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and so to kind of replicate that in the podcast, I asked you to bring a recipe uh, that has some meaning to you. So can you talk about uh, what you've brought to share with us today? Yeah. So first of all, I love that idea. I definitely want to want to use that in my courses. So thank you so much. Um, but uh, with my own experience, uh, yeah, I shared my uh, vegan tofu paprikash recipe. And as I mentioned before, one of my favorite dish, well, my mom would make chicken paprikash. And that was, that's like the ultimate comfort food for me. Like whenever, whenever I think about like my last meal on earth, you know, you, you know, people 
have those kinds of like de- fun debates sometimes. Um, I often think it's like, yeah, it's tofu pop. My mom's tofu paprikash because um, now she makes it with tofu, which is great. Now she's become more accepting of it. But um, so I, I have my own version of it though. And it's comforting for me. It represents part of my you know, heritage, but at the same time, like another part of my heritage is more veggie centric than my Hungarian heritage. So it feels like it's a way for me to combine both of my cultures, which it's been hard for me to do with a lot of aspects of my life. Um, And it's also, you know, a way that I can try to have agency with what I eat by making something that traditionally has meat and sour cream in it, a vegan, a veganized dish. So yeah, I've been making it for like over 10 years and I've you know, modified the recipe for it to be more flavorful and everything. And I love my spices. And so that recipe has a lot of it. Um, and I think it's just like a good, hearty comfort food dish. But at the same time, you know, I don't feel like I'm compromising on my ethical views. So yeah, that's why I wanted to share it. That's great. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to try it. But yeah, I think that that's, you know, a fascinating uh, sort of thing to think about the ways that the the meaning that incorporating uh, food that we grew up in that is very much not vegan uh, into sort of your new ethical commitments because mm-hmm. uh, it's a way to say to people in your family that you know this culinary tradition this uh, heritage that I'm getting from you I'm not rejecting it but I am uh, sticking by things that are important to me and I'm finding ways to have that kind of translated forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I have kids and uh, that makes it sort of like extra meaningful to my family that I find ways to veganize food that I grew up eating, because otherwise that means that the, that my kids would never have the thing that is, you know, my grandmother's recipe, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as you said, like it's that communal aspect of it that you can still continue to share. It doesn't have to be this binary of like, oh, I'm I'm going to eat vegan and then I'll never eat anything that I grew up with. Right. It's it's a way to combine both. Yeah. And as you said, then your mom learns how to do the same thing. So you're yeah. bringing people along with you. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's not going to start eating meat anytime soon. I guess I have to start cooking more vegetarian when she comes over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, this has been a great conversation um, for people mm-hmm. that uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. Where can they find you uh, online? What's the best place to reach out to you or to see more of your work? Yeah. Um, well, I do have like a, I did mention that I have my food blog, chaiveg.com, but I also have my like philosophy website, shantichu.com. So there's, that's where I have like more general stuff with philosophy. Um, I have a YouTube channel where I record philosophy videos and explain um, various concepts. And so that's all on there along with the contact form. If anyone wants to contact me, um, if you don't want to go through the website, you can always just message me on Instagram too, just like at chai veg food and just dm me and i will respond so whatever is the easiest way (laughs) all right well thank you so much i really appreciate uh you taking the time to talk to me today thank you so much as well it's really a pleasure um for me and i'm i'm really excited i enjoyed our conversation a lot so yeah thank thank you that was my conversation with shanti chu links are in the show notes including a link to shanti's academic philosophy website her blog chai veg her youtube channel and her instagram If you'd like to subscribe and write us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 